Hello, people of the way. Blessings in Jesus. If you have your Bible, please open up to Mark chapter 12, the book of Mark chapter 12. We continue our study through the New Testament. Now, here in chapter 12, it's Passover week. Passover week. Remember, Jesus, he's just been presented as the Lamb. Remember last week's study in chapter 11? And he's already told the disciples on multiple occasions that he would die and that he would rise again. He's told them several times. Remember the first time when, when Peter, he rebuked Jesus, and then Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, remember? And, you know, we see also how truth becomes withheld, and it's based on the hardness of a person's heart, how truth can become withheld, you know? I mean, it's like, remember how hearts, how we always say, you know, we want hearts to be softer than the softest jello, but then based on a person's decision, decisions and choices in life, what happens is that a heart can become harder and harder and harder and harder. I mean, try putting a sword in a stone. You know, it doesn't work. You take a sword and try to mash it in the stone. It doesn't work. But then you take a sword and you try to put it in jello. It's super easy. That's an understatement because it's super duper easy. You see? And what happens when the sword is the sword of the spirit? You see? And the Bible tells us the sword of the spirit is the word of God. And when Jesus speaks, look how his words are received with, you know, with children, with women, with men, and also the religious establishment. You see? With the children and the religious establishment, what do you see? You see jello and stone. You see? Hearts that are softer than the softest jello. And Jesus says to the disciples, remember, you know, the, the little children. The little children, you know, you for the kingdom of heaven, you have to be like the little children, you see? And it's so beautiful because we look at, you know, when we look at the heart, you see children. Have you, I mean, when you talk with children about things of the Lord, you know, it's so beautiful. They don't doubt. They don't doubt. They hear, they receive, and you see, wow, faith, it just blows up. It's just like a huge explosion of something so beautiful. And you have that same conversation with a 40-year-old. And it's like night and day. Very important to understand that we want hearts to be softer than soft as jello. And when Jesus says to the disciples, hey, like the children, you know, receive the little children. And, you know, you be like the little kids. The religious establishment, they don't have hearts of jello. Their hearts are hard. You see? And truth, as a result of hardness of heart, truth becomes withheld in uh, hearts of stone. Remember last week that Jesus, when he's speaking to the religious establishment, the so-called learned ones, the intelligentsia. And Jesus says, yeah, I'll tell you, but you know, first you answer me. And they says, we don't know. They, they were the ones, the intelligentsia. They say, we don't know. And so Jesus responds, okay, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things, you see? And here we are in Mark chapter 12. We look at verse one here, Mark chapter 12, verse one. Then he began to speak to them in parables. Look what he says here, speaking in parables. He says this, a man planted a vineyard. Now, this is a huge deal. This is a very, very huge deal because Jesus, what he's doing, he's revealing the work of our father in heaven. Hallowed be his name. Remember Eden? Remember Eden? Paradise became lost. And there's a very, very specific route, a very specific way 
for paradise to be found again. And so in this parable, Jesus is teaching, he's speaking. And, you know, a man who planted a vineyard, Jesus, he's speaking about our Father in heaven. And to plant in the Greek, it's to, it translates as to set out in the earth and plant by instilling doctrine. That's how it translates, to plant. To set out in the earth and plant by instilling doctrine. There's a reason why we speak in the manner in which we speak. Old Testament, New Testament. There's a reason why. I mean, as much as, as much as we love Moses, as much as we love Joshua, as much as we love Paul, as much as we love Peter, and the list can go on and on and on. And these are very, very beautiful individuals. But remember, they're vessels of the Lord. They're vessels of the Lord. We are never to deify the vessel. You know, uh, some of the disciples wanted to do that. You know, uh, let us build a a tabernacle for Moses. Let us build a tabernacle for Elijah. The Lord says, no, don't do that. You see, we're never to deify the vessel because lordship, that belongs to the Lord. That belongs to Jesus. And in this parable, a man plants a vineyard, sets out in the earth to plant. And when we look at Moses, you know, is it Moses? Is it Moses? When we look at Moses, is it Moses? Now, carnally, yes. You know, eyes can see Moses. But with eyes to see, we see obedience of the vessel. You see? We see obedience of the vessel. And Moses himself had reservation, you know, about going to Egypt. And I love that so much when the Lord says, Hey, Moses, I'm going to send you to Egypt. And you see Moses, he's like, kind of like, like, what, who should I tell, who should I say sent me? You know, who, who, who am I? And I love that so much. You know why? Because with Moses, and not just with Moses, we see the denial of self and obedience to God. The denial of self and obedience unto the Lord. And we see denial of self with all these vessels, Old Testament and New Testament. We see their denial of self and we can see the Lord. Remember, it's not to deify the vessel, but the Lord in them is clearly evident. And in this parable, a man plants a vineyard. And Jesus continues, he says that a man plants a vineyard and set a huge and set a hedge around it. And set a hedge around it, dug a place for the wine vat, and built a tower. So beautiful how our Lord speaks. Because, you know, what he just said in this one little sentence, he just broke it down. He, he, he broke it down. I meant big time, the plan of God. He just broke it down. Because in this vineyard, there's a hedge of protection. And what this is, this is the law. This is the law. Notice, there's a place for the wine vat. And that holds the blood of grapes, and this speaks of the blood of our Lord. But Jesus doesn't mention blood just yet, but the place for blood is there. And then there's also a tower, and the tower is for the watchman. The watchman to be on on the lookout, you know, to be on the alert for danger and harm. Very important when Jesus is speaking this parable, it's like, oh my goodness, what? He's, He's describing this beautiful plan of the Lord and the things that the Lord, our Father in heaven, hallowed be his name, the things that he put in motion many, many moons ago, the very things that angels peer into. Remember our prior studies? Look what Jesus says in this parable. 
And he leased it to the vine dressers, he says. He leased it to the vine dressers and went into a far country. So the owner, the man who planted, goes into a far country and he leases it to the vine dressers. And these are the workers. Notice, they're not owners. The owner leased it to them. You see, they are not the owner. These vine dresses, vine dressers, they're not the owner. And these vine dressers are the priesthood. The priesthood. And look what we see so far. We see the law. We see the priesthood. We see a watchtower. We see a place for blood. And we also see the owner. We see the, uh, 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 the, the priesthood. Look at the things that, this is just verse one. And look at the things we see so far in this parable that our Lord speaks. And in verse two, now at vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers that he might receive some of the fruit of the vineyard from the vine dressers. So the owner, what he does, he sends in this parable, he sends a servant to the lessees. He sends a servant to the, the renters. They're not the owners. He sends a servant to the renters, the ones who are supposed to be caring for the vineyard. Now, the servant that is sent should be blessed. Should be blessed to receive fruit. That's a beautiful thing. That's a beautiful thing. But look what happens in verse 3. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Whoa. No blessing. No blessing for the servant of the owner from the owner's own minds, from the owner's own field. The servant isn't blessed by the lessees. The servant isn't blessed by the renters. No, he's beaten. And the servant here, these are the prophets. I mean, look at Samuel, the prophet in our study in 1 Samuel. Look at Samuel, empty handed from the priesthood, empty handed from the priesthood. You see, and in verse four, again, he sent them another servant and at him, they threw stones, wounding, wounded him in the head and sent him away, shamefully treated yet another servant, yet another servant, another prophet. And the treatment is getting worse. And in verse five, what does our Lord say? And again, he sent another and him they killed and many others beating some and killing some. Therefore, in verse six, still having one son, his beloved, he also sent him to them last, last. Very important to understand when the Lord is speaking in this parable. The era of the former servants, those days are over. You see, last, the owner sends his son last. And look what the owner says in, in, in sending his, his, his one son to the renters who own nothing. They're the renters. They own nothing. And what the owner says in verse six, he also sent to sent him to them last, his one son. He also sent him to them last saying, they will respect my son. They will respect my son. But those vine dressers in verse seven, but those vine dressers said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, 
let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. Whoa. Now remember where we're at. Remember where we're at geographically. We're in Jerusalem. And this is the hotbed of the religious establishment, the intelligentsia. And sure, there's members of the priesthood. Remember, like, you know, members of the priesthood, like, like with the scribes. Remember several chapters ago with the scribes, how they could, they, they knew Elijah, but they couldn't discern Elijah. And we see how members of the priesthood, who there are members of the priesthood, scribe, Pharisees, Sadducees, who could not discern. But in the epicenter of the religious establishment here in Jerusalem and Jesus being presented to them, remember last week's study, Jesus presented as the male lamb without blemish on Passover week, riding on the younger donkey. Remember in our prior studies just last week? The renters, they know this is the heir. This is the heir. And conferring in, in, uh, uh, amongst each other, instead of giving honor to the heir, they say, let's kill him. This is the owner's son. Let's kill him. And at the end of verse 7, the inheritance will be ours. You see, they own nothing. They own nothing. And they suppose they do. They desire to be the owners, but they're just the renters. They're just the lessees. And don't forget, they were tasked, these renters, they were tasked to care for the vineyard. They were tasked to care for the field. They had a job to do. And look what Jesus says in this parable about the renters and the owner's son. In verse 8, so they took him and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard. Now, understand, Jesus speaking this parable, he's revealing to the priesthood, to the renters. He's revealing to them, hey, I know what you're up to. I know what you guys are up to. And what this is, it's... We're getting very, very, very close to their final warning. Very, very close to their final warning. And Jesus is speaking to them in parables. Look what Jesus says to them in verse 9. In verse 9, therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine dressers and give the vineyards to others. You see, as a result, as a result of the renters killing the owner's son, he will destroy them. He will destroy the lessees, the renters. Remember, they had a job to do. So now, you know, we have this vineyard, a field with no one to tend it, tend to it. But then the end of verse nine reveals it will be given to others. You see? It will be given to others. As owners, no way. As renters, as lessees, to tend the field, to dress the vines in obedience to the owner. Very important to understand. What this beautiful, beautiful parable is showing us, is teaching us, and also warning to the renters. And when Jesus speaks of, you know, verse 9, give the vineyard to others, 
These are the workers unto Gentiles. Workers unto Gentiles. The likes of Paul, Peter, James, and even still today, workers in this vast, vast, vast field of God. Remember, nothing new under the sun. Nothing new under the sun. Because today's renters, they think they're the owners. The religious establishment today, the intelligentsia of today, they think they're the owners. They desire to be the owners and they hate the faithful servants of the owner. And when we account for the, it is also written, these renters will also be destroyed. You see? Very important to understand, especially, I mean, if you've been walking with us for a while, you can see like, oh my goodness, you know, the things that James speaks, the things that Paul speaks, the things that Peter speaks, oh my goodness, it's so beautiful what the Lord has put in place, but that at the same time to see their obedience unto the Lord. And yes, very beautiful vessels. Are we to deify the vessel? Not at all. It's just like Moses, very beautiful vessel, but are we to deify the vessel? The very thing that a couple disciples wanted to, or several disciples wanted to do. Remember, oh, let's build a tabernacle to Moses. Let's build a tabernacle to Elijah. The Lord says, nope, don't do that. You see? Are we to deify the vessel? No. Because who is deified is the Lord. But what happens when the Lord is inside of these people? You see? They are vessels of the Lord. Does this mean that we are to abide in the law? Not at all. Not at all. You say, wait a second. But you say that the, that, you know, what was uh, uh, the, 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 uh, the, the barrier is the law. Well, understand. Remember, death of the testator. Remember our study in Hebrews? Death of the testator. Remember? Aaron and Melchizedek. And what becomes of necessity? Now, what it is, it's a changing of the law. Very important to understand. See, the Word of God teaches us all these things. If you're listening for the first time, go and listen to our study through Hebrews. You'll understand more. And it's so beautiful what our Lord has put in place, the things that have been put in motion many, many, many moons ago. Why? Because He loves you. He loves you. He's the one who made a way. Remember, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. God sent his son into the world not to condemn the world, but that the world through Jesus might be saved. And the word might, that's a biggie. That's a biggie. Because it presents you with a choice. You're listening, you're not a believer, it presents you with a choice. That whoever believes in him might be saved. Let's change that might into will be saved. And if that's you, you want to commit your life to Jesus, you hit pause, you listen to the message how to commit your life to Christ. You commit your life to Christ right here, right now. You come back, you listen, we grow together. We grow together. We're on our way to paradise. And there's a very specific route. There's a very specific way that the word of God teaches us Genesis to Revelation and everything in between. Very important to understand. You know, a lot of times people, they get very mad at us. You know, when we speak in this manner in which we speak, understand this vineyard and this field. 
It must be properly cared for, tenderly cared for, and vehemently protected. Remember, the owner, he put a watchtower for a reason. And when you look at all the renters today, and we speak of pastors, in whom is the formula right? You see? Remember Paul? When Paul speaks to the saints, when he says, you're the field. You're the field. He says that to the saints. You guys. It's you, the saints. You are the field. And of himself and the tiny bubble where we see Titus and Timothy. Of himself and this tiny bubble, he says, we are the workers. He says to the saints, you are the field and we are the workers. You know what this means? You, my beautiful brother, you, my beautiful sister, you are the field. You see? You are the field. Pastors, they are the dressers. They are the workers. They are the renters. They are the ones to care for you. Pastors, elders, those in ministry, workers in this vast field of the Lord. But let me ask you a question. What happens if these workers become carnal? What happens if these workers become idolatrous? What happens if these workers become apostate? What happens if these workers become wicked and evil and or a servant of Satan? What happens? You see, look at the renters when Jesus is speaking this parable. Look at the renters, the vine dressers. He's speaking of the priesthood. And we've seen, I mean, if you haven't listened to our study through the book of Judges, go and listen to our study, the book of Judges. Because you'll see, wow, we have the priesthood, we have the priesthood, wow, we have the priesthood. But then when you look at them, what do you see? You see carnality, you see idolatry, you see apostasy. And is that reserved just for the, the judges' era? Is it reserved just for Israel? No, nothing new under the sun. Because it happens in the church. When the vine dressers, the new set of vine dressers, when they think they're the owners. No, 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 no. They're the renters. They're the renters. The field belongs to him. And you are the field. And where are the faithful workers today? You see? And don't forget when, you know, the, 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 the weeds from 2,000 years ago, you know, give or take a couple years, they already had the ability to choke out. Remember when Jesus speaks about, you know, there's the, uh, the, the master and the field and then the weeds pop up and, you know, the servants of the master. Oh, you know, do you want us to take, take the weeds out? Do you want us to take the weeds out? And the master says, no, no, leave the weeds there because if you take the weeds out now, you might uproot them. You might uproot the, the, the good plant. You might uproot the good seed. So leave them there until the harvest until the time of the harvest. And that was said, you know, 2,000 years ago, give or take a couple years. What do you think the field looks like today? What do you think the field looks like in the last days? Is it a nice, beautiful field? No way. It's weed-ridden. And weeds don't bear good fruit. You see? 
And a lot of times what happens is people think, well, I'm going to church today and, you know, by osmosis, I'm good to go. You know, by osmosis, I'm in the family of God. But that's not how it works. That's not how it works. The faithful workers, just like Paul and Titus and Timothy, the faithful workers will carefully and gently dress you. You see, because they're the they're the vine dressers so that our fruit can be wonderful and beautiful, you see, and bear fruit unto the Lord. The weeds, they won't be a threat to you. The, the faithful under, under the faithful workers, the weeds, they're not going to be a threat to you. The wolves are far from you because the faithful workers, they kill them, metaphysically speaking. But the wolves are killed. The, the wolves are, are dealt with, metaphysically speaking. That's what the faithful vine dressers do, you see? And workers as covering, understand, these are men, always male. Covering, always male. These types of covering, always male. But workers as non-covering, it's both men and women, you see? We see that with Chloe. We see that with Lydia. Very important to understand. These are faith, faith, faithful workers unto the Lord, unto the owner, in the owner's field. And the field is you. The field is the believer. And this is what we see when we account for the it is also written. You know, there's more, but this is a basic level of the landscape. And if you're listening and you're not a believer, or maybe you're lukewarm, listen. Change that. We can change it right here, right now. You hit pause. You know, you haven't, you, you didn't do so in the last exhortation to do so. Hey, hit pause right now. And go and listen to the message, how to commit your life to Christ. And you do exactly that. You commit your life to Christ. You come back, you listen, and we continue in this journey together. Remember, Jesus here in Mark 12, he's speaking to the religious establishment. He's speaking to the ones who were supposed to be in the know. He's speaking to the renters. He's speaking to the vine dressers who are not the owner. They are not the owner, but they assume themselves to be. And Jesus says this in verse 10. Have you not even read this scripture? Now, before we continue, something very, very common with the so-called learned class, with the intelligentsia, you know what it is? It's pride, an intellectual pride. An intellectual pride, it rests its laurels on academia. Very arrogant, highly arrogant, very prideful. And they look down on those whom they determine are not equal to them. You see? And it's been around for a long time. And we still see it today. The modern day intelligentsia. The modern day religious establishment. Let me tell you something. The modern day religious establishment, the modern day intelligentsia, these are among the dumbest people I've ever met. The dumbest, the dumbest of the dumb, the modern day intelligentsia, the religious establishment. Not only do they lack understanding, they're blind. They're blind. And here in Mark chapter 12, 
We're not among the intelligentsia of Nazareth or the intelligentsia of Capernaum. No, we're with the so-called hardcore, the so-called learned ones. Remember, we're in Jerusalem. And nobody, nobody but nobody dares to speak to them in the manner that Jesus is speaking to them. But remember, God is no respecter of persons. God is no respecter of persons. Picture how angry the intelligentsia was in hearing these things. Picture how angry the religious establishment, it was just brewing inside of them. Who is, how dare he speak to us like this? Does he know who we are? Picture how angry they're getting. And don't forget, they're already plotting to destroy Jesus and, you know, trying to trap him. We've seen that in their earlier chapters. But, you know, hearing Jesus speak in, you know, in this parable, they must have been fuming. And it's amping up the, the intensity of their desire to destroy Jesus. It's amping up. It's getting more intense. And Jesus says, have you not even read this scripture? They're fuming. The intelligentsia. They're fuming. It's off the charts. They're mad. And what Jesus does is he cites the ancient text. He says this. Have, have you not even read this scripture? And he says, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. You see, the intelligentsia, the religious establishment, they're fulfilling prophecy. They're fulfilling prophecy. Now, it's prophecy concerning condemnation, but it's being fulfilled. You see? Because for stone to become chief cornerstone, what's happening is Jesus, he's further revealing, he's further revealing that he is the heir, legal heir, according to Moses. And Jesus says this in verse 11, this was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Now, remember, this is a question where Jesus says, you know, have you not read this scripture? The intelligentsia, they're fuming, they're mad, they're incensed. How dare he speak to us like this? How dare, you know, we follow Moses. How dare he speak to us like this? We follow the law. And Jesus is using the ancient text of the law of the prophets to reveal himself. Remember, it's Passover week. Remember what happened in last week's study in chapter 11 when Jesus comes riding on the younger donkey. Presenting himself. The Lord being presented as lamb. And as king, remember the law and the prophets. And Jesus, now he's speaking, continues to speak to the intelligentsia, the religious establishment. And he says these things, speaking to them in parables and explaining, have you not read? Have you not even read this scripture? They're mad. In verse 12, and they sought to lay hands on him, but feared the multitude. Now notice, they wanted to lay hands on our Lord right there. Lay hands in the Greek is to take by strength and seize. That's what they wanted to do with Jesus right at that very moment. But notice their misdirected fear. Instead of fearing the Lord, they fear the people. And I don't say that to imply that, you know, they should have nabbed their Lord. Not at all. It's not said to imply that, you know, you know, they, they, in, in fearing God, you know, that they should have done this. But, you know, they feared the people. Look at their misdirected fear that has ultimately brought them to their blindness. They feared the people. 
and fearing the people, it has brought them to their blindness so that they cannot understand. You know what they are? They're man-pleasers. That's what they are. They're man-pleasers. Because if they did fear the Lord, if they did fear the Lord, think of how fear of the Lord could have served to help them. You know, where Jesus could arrive on the scene, you know, baptized in the River Jordan. And Jesus could be baptized and begin to speak. And the religious leaders, they could inquire, ask questions. I don't mean like a full-blown interrogation, you know, but ask questions, inquire, and inquire even further. More questions and come to the realization, oh my goodness, Messiah is here. Messiah is here. That's what would have happened had they truly feared the Lord. But without that safety net of fearing God, look at them. Look at them. Instead of welcoming Messiah, no, they want to destroy him. You see? They wanted to destroy him before. But it's only been intensifying post-baptism. It's only been intensifying. And we see here in verse 12, you know, that they sought to lay hands on him, but they but but feared the multitude, for they knew, for they knew he had spoken the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Very interesting. Very interesting. You see, they could discern the parable. They knew that Jesus was speaking against them. And this is something that knowledge affords. It's an ability to know certain things, you know, but understand also that knowledge does not afford wisdom and understanding. You see, knowledge does not afford wisdom and understanding. It's just like the scribes several chapters ago. Remember, we studied this several chapters ago. They knew the scriptures regarding Elijah. But they could not discern the scriptures because Elijah came. Elijah came. We studied this. And understand that knowledge is a gift from the Spirit. It is a gift of the Holy Spirit, but it is not the greatest gift. The greatest gift is love. You see? You see, the scribes, they knew the scriptures. They knew about Elijah. The Pharisees, they knew the scriptures. They knew the parable. But look at their hearts. You see, the hearts are hard. They're not jello. Their hearts are not softer than the softest jello. No, you see, their hearts are getting closer and closer and closer to being stone. You see, when you look at the hearts, you couple that with pride, arrogance, Misdirected fear, that's a very bad recipe. A very bad recipe. And as a result, truth is withheld. And they cannot discern the scriptures. Very important to understand. And today there are people who know the scriptures. They do know the scriptures, but they cannot discern the scriptures. Sometimes they call themselves pastors. But the Bible tells us what to look for. You see? It's not just doctrine. Remember, Jesus, when Jesus was speaking to the religious establishment on their error, what they were doing is they were teaching the tradition of men as doctrine. You see? And the tradition that they were teaching, it was something that wasn't even in Scripture. 
you see. All doctrine, it must be sound doctrine. Everything has to line up perfectly. Genesis, Genesis to Revelation and everything in between, it has to line up perfectly. Everything. The intelligentsia of the Mark 12 era, they had it easy. Because what had to line up was Genesis to Malachi. For you and me today, we add even more. We have Genesis to Malachi, and then we add the Gospels and the Epistles. And everything has to line up perfectly. You see? Look what happens here in Mark 12. In verse 13, they, Then they sent to him some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to catch him in his words. You see, they're throwing everything at our Lord. And they can't stop him. They can't trick him. They can't trap him. And that alone should reveal plenty to them. Remember, this is the intelligentsia, not the intelligentsia of Nazareth or Capernaum. No, we're in the epicenter in Jerusalem. And they can't trap him. They can't trap our Lord. And that, that should say enough right there. If they still won't believe, if they still refuse to believe, you see? And so now we have this combo the religious establishment and the political establishment, they're trying to catch our Lord in his words. In the Greek, translates says, they're trying to hunt and entrap. And in verse 14, when they had come, this is the Pharisees and Herodians, when they had come, they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and care about no one, for you do not regard the person of men, but teach the way of God in truth. Notice, in this verse, what they speak, they're condemning themselves. They're condemning themselves because they call Jesus teacher. They call him true. They acknowledge that he is no respecter of persons. They acknowledge that he teaches the way of God in truth. And they're trying to entrap him. You see, they're condemning themselves. And something I want to say really quick. It's very true that God is no respecter of persons. Jesus isn't and neither are his vessels. But we've been walking with Jesus in the Mark era in our studies from chapter 1. We've been walking with him. I mean, we walk with him in our day-to-day. But in our studies, we've seen from Mark chapter 1. We see that he's no respecter of persons. But at the same time, To whom does Jesus show kindness? To whom does Jesus show compassion? To whom does he reveal himself? I mean, we look back and we remember the children. Remember the woman bleeding? The paralytic? The tax collectors? The fishermen? With other gospels, the woman at the well? And don't forget, the woman at the well, she was not on her first marriage. She wasn't even on her second marriage. When we look at the other Gospels, we see prostitutes. And look at how our Lord was with them. It's very true that he is no respecter of persons. But when you see Jesus interacting with the people, it almost seems like he is a respecter of persons. So how do we reconcile? We look at the heart of the people. We look at the heart. You see? You look at the religious establishment, the so-called learned ones, the intelligentsia, and their hearts were hard. 
But you look at these other beautiful people, the fishermen, prostitutes, tax collectors, the children, paralytic. And you see, wow, their hearts are maybe not jello, but maybe balsa wood. You see? Soft, very soft. It's easily easily penetrated by the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and the Word became flesh. You see? So beautiful to understand. And you look at when Jesus, when he interacts with children, when he interacts with women, when he inter- interacts with, you know, the, 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 the man, when he interacts with people in different vocations, it's like, wow, it, we know that he's no respecter of persons, but it almost looks like he is a respecter of persons. And we understand that it is a matter of the heart. Remember when Jesus began his earthly ministry, he was an open book to everybody speaking openly and plainly in synagogue. But yet he was reactionary to their hearts. Remember Nazareth? No mighty works in Nazareth. But that happened for a reason. And here in Mark 12, the religious and political establishment, they acknowledge Jesus as true and they ask him a question. They said, they said, you know, uh, in verse 14, you know, uh, uh, teacher, we know that you are true and care about no one for you do not regard the, the person of men, but teach the way of God in truth. And this is the question they ask. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? Oh, see, they, remember, they're trying to trap Jesus. Oh, that was a good question. Oh, yeah, you know, we'll, we're, we got him now. We got him now. And if these so-called connected people, if they're anything like the connected people today, I venture to think that they don't even pay taxes. They probably have their shelter games. If they're anything like the connected today, they have their shelter games. They have their schemes to bypass tax liabilities or burden the people with those liabilities. I, I venture to think that. So they ask this question, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? And Jesus, look how he responds. He says, but he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, why do you test me? Bring me a denarius that I may see it. And denarius is a coin. And the hypocrisy that Jesus knows of them, is it the hypocrisy of the question? Is it the hypocrisy of their attempt to entrap? Or is it the hypocrisy of wrong formula? Or is it a combo? I don't know. But I also venture to think that it's a multiple. And so Jesus asked them for a coin. Denarius. In verse 16, so they brought it and he said to them, Whose image and inscription is this? It's something so simple. So simple. You just look at a coin. Whose whose image? Whose inscription is this? They ask about paying taxes to Caesar and the coin that they brought to him, the denarius. The coin has an image and inscription. And it's Caesar. There's his head. There's his name. And Jesus asked him, whose image and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Verse 17. And Jesus answered and said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. So beautiful how our Lord speaks. 
You see, on the coin is Caesar's image and his name. And it's his. But what about hearts? What about the vineyard? What about the owner? He wants what's his. Straight up, he wants what's his. In verse 18, Then some Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him. See, they're coming to Jesus from all sides. They're coming at him. All sides. And we've seen the scribes in our previous chapters. We've seen the scribes. We've seen the Pharisees. We've seen Herodians. And now the Sadducees. And the Sadducees, they say, verse 18, they say there is no resurrection. They come to Jesus and they asked him saying in verse 19, teacher, teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies and leaves his wife behind and leaves no children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, these are things that we studied in the law. If you're, if, if you're listening for the first time or you're a new listener and you haven't listened to our studies in the law, go and listen to our studies through Leviticus and the book of Numbers. And you'll understand more about inheritance. And so the Sadducees here in Mark 12, they present this scenario to Jesus. Look what they say. In explaining the scenario in verse 20, now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and dying, he left no offspring. And the second took her, and he died, nor did he leave, nor did he leave any offspring. And the third likewise. So the seven had so the seven had her and left no offspring. Last of all, the woman died also. So the Sadducees, they present this scenario to Jesus. There's no offspring. All have died, the seven brothers and the woman. And in verse 23, look what we see. This is the, 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 the question of the Sadducees. Therefore, in the resurrection, when they rise, whose wife will she be? For all seven had her as wife. Very interesting question that they ask. Very interesting question. Now remember, the Sadducees, they do not believe in the resurrection. You see? And yet they're asking Jesus about the resurrection. You see? Their plot is fully exposed. Fully exposed. They're trying to trap Jesus. They're trying to get him to say something that would be contradictory to the law so that they can legally have reason to kill him. That's what they're trying to do. They're trying to entrap the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. They're trying to entrap because they want to have a legal reason. According to Moses, they want to have a legal reason to kill him. And in verse 24, Jesus answered and said to them, Are you not therefore mistaken? Because you do not know the scriptures nor the power of God. You see, are you not therefore mistaken? Jesus asks. In verse 25, for when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And what Jesus does here, he describes the resurrection. When humans become glorified, and Jesus himself, the first fruits of the resurrection, remember our study in 1 Corinthians? 
He says this in verse 26. He says, but concerning the dead that they rise. Have you not read in the book of Moses, in the burning bush passage, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. You see, when God spoke to Moses, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they died already. And God didn't say to Moses, you know, I was the God of Abraham. I was the God of Isaac. I was the God of Abraham. That's not what the Lord said. He said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jesus here, he's addressing the Sadducees' question, but he's also addressing their doctrinal error. You see, taking Moses, taking Moses, whom they esteem greatly, and using Moses to present impossibilities with what they don't believe. Straight up telling them, you know, if you hold to Moses, if you hold to Moses, it's impossible to not believe in the resurrection. And these are the Sadducees who don't believe in the resurrection. And Jesus is exposing this clear reality to them that if you truly hold to Moses, it's impossible to not believe. Because God didn't say to Moses, I was the God of Abraham. I was the God of Isaac. I was the God of Jacob. No. The Lord said, I am. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And what that does, it obliterates the Sadducees not, not believing in the resurrection. And to my Jewish friends today, who don't believe in the resurrection. If you hold to Moses, that's impossible. And to my Christian friends who don't believe in the resurrection, if you hold to the Bible, that's impossible. You see, I'll go even further to my Christian friends, brothers and sisters who believe in a pre-tribulation resurrection or a pre-tribulation rapture. If you hold to the Bible, Moses, the prophets, the gospels, and the epistles, listen, that's impossible. You see, it's impossible, straight up. And I know that comes as a shock to a lot of people, Christians who, many, many Christians who believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. And for more information on the resurrection we have the studies. If you've been walking with us for a while, you've, you've been through our studies. Go to thewayunderground.com and go to the prophecy area and listen to the studies on the rapture and the resurrection. You'll understand a lot more. What the Bible teaches about the resurrection. Very important to understand. Very, very important. Because when we measure theories that people have, that men have, that pastors have, that teachers have, when we measure these theories and we line them up with the Word of God, everything has to line up perfectly. Perfectly. And if it doesn't, we get rid of it. If it doesn't, we don't yield to it. Very important to understand. And Jesus teaching and explaining this to the Sadducees who do not believe in their resurrection. And Jesus is just straight up telling them, hey, that's impossible. 
Because if you truly hold to Moses, it's impossible for you not to believe in the resurrection. You see? In verse 27, he is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. Because God didn't say to Moses, I was, you know, I was the God of Abraham. No, he says, I am. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Remember, when, when, when God spoke to Moses, they had died. And yet God still says, I am the God of Abraham. You see? Remember, Jesus is speaking to the Sadducees, <clears throat> the intelligentsia. And so he says in verse 27, you are therefore greatly mistaken. Greatly mistaken, he says. Then we see verse 28. And then one of the scribes came. Now, notice, they just keep coming. They just keep coming. But what we're going to see something, you know, in the, in, the, in the heart of this scribe. We're going to see the heart of this scribe. It's just, you know, we've seen Jesus speak to the intelligentsia. And Jesus, in speaking to the intelligentsia, the religious establishment in the Herodians, you are mistaken, he says. You are greatly mistaken. And he even asked, you know, have you not read? He's even called them on their hypocrisy. But this particular scribe here in verse 28, he's not met with those words. He's not met with similar words that our Lord says to the intelligentsia. And so this particular scribe, scribe, he comes to Jesus and we see here in verse 28, and having heard them reasoning together, perceiving that he had answered them well, perceiving that Jesus has, had answered them well, asked him, which is the first commandment of all? Translates as, which is the best commandment of all? And verse 29, Jesus answered him. The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second is like it, or the second like it is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. That's what our Lord says in verse 32. So the scribe said to him, Well said, teacher, you have spoken the truth. For there is one God and there is no other but he. And sometimes I wonder about this particular scribe. The heavy hitters, you know, they're all coming from all angles. You know, they're all coming at Jesus. The heavy hitters, they all have their try at Jesus. And in verse 28, we see that the scribe, he was just observing, just observing. He sees them reasoning and he perceives that Jesus answered well. And I tend to think that this particular scribe was not part of the, the in crowd. Perhaps maybe removed from the plot to kill Jesus. Maybe. Sometimes I wonder. And so this scribe, he continues to tell our Lord in verse 33, you know, we see, you know, well said teacher in verse 32, well said teacher, you have spoken the truth for there is, there is one God and there is no other but he and to love him with all the heart, with all understanding, with all the soul and with all, all the strength. 
and to love one's neighbor as oneself, look what he says here, is more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Look what this scribe says. To love the Lord, to love God with all the heart, all the understanding, all the soul, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself, those, it's more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Look what the scribe is acknowledging. You know, the accoutrements of the law, speaking of, you know, offerings and sacrifice, are not better than the law's author and the people. Look what Jesus says in verse 34. Now, when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. You see the heart. Look at the heart. You look at the intelligentsia, the scribes, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Herodians. They're all coming at Jesus. They're all coming. They're all entrapping, trying to trap him. And yet you see this singular scribe, his heart is not yet as hard as the others. And as a result, he's getting closer to the kingdom. You see? And Jesus says, you are not far from the kingdom of heaven. Because this scribe acknowledges that the law's author and the people, they are more than the burnt offerings and sacrifices. You see? And the kingdom is close to him. Praise be to the Lord because you can see like when you look at the hearts, when you understand formula, the earlier chapters in the book of Mark, when you see the seed and when seed goes in the ear hole and goes to the heart, what happens? What happens? Remember the earlier studies where, you know, sometimes Satan is there and boom, he wants to get that seed out of there. And then we look at the condition of the heart. It's like, wait a second. We want that seed to take root, fertile soil in the heart. And the seed is the word of God. And when you understand the pneumos, remember the earlier studies in the earlier chapters, you understand the pneumos, how the pneumos is a very dangerous environment. And we can engage in this warfare, spiritual warfare, not fighting rules of engagement of the old covenant, but rules of engagement of the new covenant. And understand what is happening in the pneumos. Understand what is happening in people's hearts. Because you look at the religious establishment, like, oh my goodness, these guys, their hearts are hard. Look, and how, like, you know, when Jesus speaks to the woman at the well, she wasn't on her first marriage, nor was she on her second marriage. And yet, all of a sudden, look what happens. When she says to Jesus, our Lord, in John chapter 4, you know, my people, they say that, you know, the, uh, the, the Messiah is coming. And Jesus responds to her, says, hey, Messiah, it's here. And I am he. She didn't laugh at his face. She didn't say, you know, like, oh, you know, how dare you say that? Or, you know, oh, you know, uh, 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 she didn't come up with excuses or say, well, what, what the priest says this. She believed. Boom. She believed. You are Messiah. And when you see Jesus traversing the lands, going from town to town to town, you see that for this woman at the well, no, he dwelt in that town. 
He stayed there for a while. And it's so beautiful to see. You look at when Jesus was uh, 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 with Philip and Nathaniel. You know, oh, you know, we found the Messiah that Moses and the prophets spoke of. We, we found him. We found him. And Nathaniel, you know, kind of a little bit doubtful at first. You know, you, you found the Messiah, you know, okay, you know. And then all of a sudden he meets Jesus. And Jesus says, you know, I saw you under the fig tree. And boom, instant belief. You see? But then when you look at the paralytic, you know, all through our study in the book of Mark, thus far, I mean, we're in chapter 12 now, we're going to see it more. But all through our study, you see people that come to Jesus and boom, they believe. Wow, he is the Messiah. But then you look at the religious establishment. And you see like, wow, it's like, like taking, you take a big stone and you take a sword and you're trying to like put the sword in the stone and it just doesn't work. Why? Because it's stone. You see? But then you do the same thing with jello and whoosh, nice and easy. And for this scribe, you see like, wow, you know, maybe his heart isn't yet stone. Maybe, in, maybe it's maple. Maybe it's oak. Still hard, but not as hard as the others. You see? And as a result, he's getting closer to the kingdom. And we see here at the end of verse 34, but after that, no one dared question him. You see? They try and try and try, and they cannot trap our Lord. And we see after that, no one dared question him. Remember, we're in the hotbed. We're in the, we're in the epicenter. We're not in Nazareth. We're not in Capernaum. We're not in the region of Galilee. No, we're in Jerusalem. These are supposed to be the hardcore people. The intelligentsia of the intelligentsia. And they can't trap him. You see? They're trying to find excuse. They're trying to, they're trying to trap him so they can say, Well, okay, he's wrong. He has sinned. So therefore, according to the law, we can kill him. They're trying to trap him so they can kill him. And they cannot. You see? And in verse 35, then Jesus answered and said, Why he taught in the temple? How is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? And so Jesus, he starts to explain incongruities with the teachings of the scribes. Remember, everything has to fit. It has to fit perfectly. And the religious establishment, they were using their version of the son of David. Their interpretation, you know, they, how they interpreted the son of David. And they were teaching that as something proper, something right. And Jesus, what he does here, he explains to the people. He says, hey, it doesn't fit. It doesn't fit. And in the temple, he asked this question in verse 35. How is it that the scribes say that, Christ, that the Christ is the son of David? In verse 36, for David himself said by the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Understand when, when this psalm was written by David, David at this time, at this juncture in time on the timeline, David, he was king. 
And he was considered Lord, lowercase l, lowercase l, but he was king. He was considered Lord, lowercase l. He was the king. And King David says, the Lord said to my Lord. So notice, we have a total of three lords. One of them is lowercase, a total of three lords. David is lowercase. He's king. And so when we do a simple accounting, it's so simple. When we do a simple accounting, okay, so we got three lords here. One of them is lowercase. One of them is the most high God. One of them is King David. He's the lowercase L. But there's one left. There's one left. Who is he? How do we account for him? How do we reconcile this? You see, the interpretation of the scribes and the religious establishment, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, their interpretation could not account for this. And what they were doing, they were applying a carnal method to the lordship of a coming Messiah, assuming that Messiah would would come and establish a, a physical rule and restoration of Israel. Now, these are things that will happen. They will absolutely happen. But with a proper accounting of the scriptures, there's more that has to happen. You see, there's more, much more that has to happen. And the, the, the intelligentsia of, you know, 2,000 years ago, give or take a couple years, they had it easy. They had it easy because they just had to account for Genesis to Malachi. That's it. Genesis to Malachi, that's all they had to account for. Now, a person could say, so little. Like it's it's non-essential. You know, how the religious establishment, how they interpret the scriptures, well, it's, it's no big deal. It's no big deal. It's so it's non-essential. Look, the priests, they're nice guys. They've been to schooling, they've had their, you know, their academia. They got their degrees on the wall, they got their masters. Surely they know their stuff. Look at their lineage. Surely they know their stuff. Look, the priest, he's a nice guy. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the, the scribes. Oh, look, they're nice people. Why are you being such a legalist? You're too hardcore. Why do you have to be such a stickler on doctrine? You see? But understand, in the case of the intelligentsia, the religious leaders misapplying the scriptures, they killed Messiah. They killed the Messiah. The third Lord that we have to account for from David, the psalmist, we have capital L, Lord. Okay, that's the most high. We have lowercase l. Okay, that's King David. But then we have another uppercase Lord. Who is that? The third Lord that we have to account for. The priests, they killed him. And in killing him, they were the ones, the priesthood, the nice guys, you know, oh, oh, look, he's a scribe. He's a nice guy. Oh, look, the, 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 the Kohanim and the Levites. Oh, look, they're nice guys. They've been to schooling or, oh, you know, they, they had their academia. They come from a very special line. And why do you have to be such a stickler on doctrine? Oh, you're such a legalist. Why are you being so, you know, you're too hardcore. Why, you know, why does the doctrine, why are you so hardcore on doctrine? And it's the religious establishment. They were the ones who shouted, we have no king but Caesar. And they shouted, 
crucify him. You see, they misapplied the scripture and they missed the coming of Messiah and the religious establishment of today, 2023 AD, including the church. Misapplying the scripture will miss the return of Messiah. It is no small thing. Everything has to line up. Genesis to Malachi, the Gospels, and the Epistles. Everything has to line up perfectly. You see? And as a little side note, and maybe even a big side note, the religious leaders, they did not apply the law in Messiah's death. They did not apply the law because Messiah, he died on the cross, not by stone. And what this does, it opens up a whole new ballgame through effectuation and also nullification. Very important to understand. I wish, I wish I could speak to rabbis. For my Jewish friends, you have every reason to be cautious around Christians because a lot of Christians misapply the scriptures and they hate Jews. They teach replacement theology, replacement theory. But let me tell you something, that's a lie from the pit of hell. And for my Jewish friends, go to thewayunderground.com, thewayunderground.com, and listen to the studies that are there specifically for you. And we can see how Torah, Torah, reveals Messiah. Son of David, yes. Son of man, yes. Son of God, yes. And look what Jesus says here in verse 37. Therefore, David himself calls him Lord. How is he then his son? How is it? You see, when we account for the third Lord, remember we have uppercase L, that's God the Father, okay, the Most High. We're just giving an accounting here. Okay, we account for the Most High. And then we have the lowercase L, that's King David. Okay, we account for him. And David, Jesus asked this question, verse 34, 37, David himself calls him Lord. How is he then his son? And the scribes in the religious establishment, they knew. They knew that Messiah is the son of David, but that's it. Son of David with a lineage of the flesh, and that's it. They didn't apply son of man, and they didn't apply son of God. And what Jesus does, he points to this disconnect. He points to this, this disconnect with the intelligentsia, the religious establishment, the religious leaders, the Levites, the Kohanim, and their doctrine. It doesn't fit. It doesn't line up with Moses. Moses, in whom they trust, it doesn't line up with the scriptures. The prophets, it doesn't line up with the prophets. Yeah, but, but the priest, he's, he's educated. The Kohanim, they're, they're educated. But the priesthood, they're supposed to be the shepherds of Israel. 
Yeah, they are. They're supposed to be the shepherds of Israel. They're supposed to be caring for the field. They're supposed to be vine dressers. That's what they were tasked to do as renters. That's what they were tasked to do. You see? But look at them. When you understand the formula, look at them. You see? It doesn't fit what they say, what they teach. It does not fit the scriptures. And Jesus, like David in verse 37, David himself calls him Lord. How is he then his son? How is King David referring to his son as Lord? You see, it doesn't fit. As interpreted by the intelligentsia, because there's only one way it does. There's only one way it fits. There's only one way it fits. And what it does, it points to the very one who entered Jerusalem lowly, riding on the donkey, on the little donkey, in fulfillment of the law and the prophets. On Passover week, on Passover week, Jerusalem, oh Jerusalem, here is your Passover. Here is the lamb. Here is your king. Here is Messiah. There's only one way it fits. You see? Look what we see here at the end of verse 37. And the common people heard him gladly. I love this. The common people. The common people. The average Joe and the average Jane. The common people. The average Hanoch and the average Chava. The common people. The common man, the common woman. I love that. The religious establishment and so-called learned ones, the intelligentsia, they're blind. They've blinded themselves. They've corrupted themselves. And in verse 38, what do we see here? Then he said to them in his teaching. Remember, he's the, the common people. They heard him gladly. In verse 38, then he said to them in his teaching, Beware of the scribes. Beware of the scribes, he says. Beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes, love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, and the best places at feasts. You see, the religious leaders, they like to be the center of attention. They like the accolades of mere men, the best seat in the house. Remember, we saw this with the paralytic. Remember in the earlier chapters when the house was so full, it was a packed house. Remember? And the paralytic, he was lowered to Jesus from the roof. Well, guess who had the best seats in the house? You see? And to look at these mere mortals with all their education, all their training, and their lineage, the people thought, surely these men are right. Surely they're right. Surely they know their stuff because after all, it's the Levites. After all, we see Kohanim. And Jesus is telling the people, no, beware of them. And he describes what they do in verse 40. Who devour widows' houses and for a pretense or, you know, for outward showing. That's how it translates. For a pretense. Make long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. 
see? These will receive greater condemnation. Because for someone to be priest, for someone to be priest, for someone to be in the religious establishment, for someone to be considered a religious leader, all the rules apply. All the rules apply, both good and bad. For someone to be in the Levitic and the tribe of the Levites, all the rules apply. You want to be a priest? Okay. Here's what you do. All the rules apply. And disclaimer, little side note, here's what happens if you don't perform the duty as prescribed in scripture. You see, you know what that is? Stoning, death, judgment, wrath. Oh, but he's priest, he's priest, he's priest. That's nice. Look at him. The formula's got to be right. You see? Oh, you're so mean. What do you mean stoning the priest, stoning the priest? That's so mean. Look what they do. Look what they do to the high priest in the order of Melchizedek. They're the ones who shout out, we have no king but Caesar. They're the ones who shout out, give us Barabbas. They're the ones who cry out, crucify him. And I'm the bad guy. It's just like pastors today. All the rules apply. Okay, you want to be pastor? Okay. All the rules apply. And this is what you do. And little disclaimer, little side note. Here's what happens if you don't. You see? Look at the religious establishment of our era. 2023 AD. You see? We got the pastors. We got elders. They're everywhere. On every street corner, we can see the pastors, we can see the overseers, we can see the elders. On every street corner, we can see them. Sure, we got them. But look at them. Look at them. When you understand the holy formula and you look at them, you very quickly see, wow, there's a whole lot of blind. You see? There's a whole lot of blind. There's a whole lot of dumb. There's a whole lot of stupid. There's a whole lot of fools. There's a whole lot of people who have no business at the pulpit. You know what that is? That's prophecy. That's fulfillment of prophecy. The guides are blind for the coming of Messiah. You see? The guides are blind for the coming of Messiah. It's exactly like it was 2,000 years ago, give or take a couple years. Nothing new under the sun. In verse 41, look what we see here. In verse 41. Verse 41. Now Jesus sat opposite the treasury. Now, if we were to take a map of Jerusalem, the old city, we would see the movements of Jesus where he's in temple. I mean, you know, last week we'd see him like enter Jerusalem and and go in in different areas. And, you know, we kind of see zigzagging in and out of Jerusalem. But here we, you know, if we were to take a map of the old city, we would see this movement of our Lord where he's in temple. Then here it's almost like he's like across the street scenario. 
you know, like, you know, where on the other side is the treasury where, you know, that's where people go and give money to temple. And across the way is Jesus. He's observing. He's observing. So we see in verse 41, now Jesus sat opposite the treasury and saw how the people put money into the treasury. And many who were rich put in much. Then one poor widow came and threw in two mites, which make a quadrants. Now, these are coins, very low value coins, extremely low value coins. And just, just picture for a moment what we observe here with Jesus. Remember, back in the day, there were no credit cards, no e-banking, no checkbooks. Everything was cash and coin at that. And the rich people, they come in with their money bags. You know, sometimes, you know, one bag, two bag, three bag, maybe even more. They come in with their bags of money, a bag full of coins. And these aren't the measly copper quadrants and, you know, the, you know, even lower valued the mites. No, they're coming, you know, they're coming with the, the big coins. And just picture what's happening. Picture what's happening. If you've ever been to a so-called VIP event, a venue of the wealthy, the celebrities, the A-listers, maybe a couple B-listers, you know, B-listers who they, 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 know, they know somebody, they got an invite. You'll see the expensive cars, the $500,000 cars, the million-dollar cars. You'll see the fancy clothes, a shirt that costs $5,000, a dress that costs $10,000, a guy who's wearing a watch that costs $80,000, a lady's bracelet, you know, $80,000, maybe even more. That's the wealthy class. They have their extravagances. They have their lifestyles. And picture this treasury that we're looking at here in Mark 12. We're across the street with Jesus. And we're looking at the treasury. We see the wealthy arrive. They have the accoutrement of the wealthy. And they come in with their bags of money. And, you know, they, they have to, you know, here's a guy with a big bag of money. Here's a guy with two big bags. Here's another guy with five big bags. It's like, whoa, look, they're just, they're dropping their money in. And they're giving it to the treasury for temple. And then a woman comes up. A woman comes up. She's poor. She's poor. She doesn't, she doesn't, she's not wearing the same garb as the wealthy class. And I don't know, but in my mind, I just paint a picture. Perhaps maybe it's been a while since she's even washed her clothes. Maybe her clothes have holes or maybe you can see the old patches where, you know, the, the, the old patch that was, so, you know, a patch job from five years ago. And you can see like, wow, that, that patch needs to be replaced. Or scratch that, you know, that whole robe and just, just throw it away. You see, wow, she's poor. She's a widow. No husband. And what that does, it presents some other possible scenarios. No husband. And that, we won't mention them, but it does present other possible scenarios with an understanding of the law. It does present that, but we won't mention those things. And yet what we see, this poor widow. I mean, picture that. We're across the street. We're with our Lord. And we're just observing. And you see the, the rich guys come in. And they got their, wow, that's a, that's a nice robe. Wow, that's a, whew, where did you get that? I mean, it's not from here. It's like from, you know, from, from, from another country. We don't even have those fabrics here. Like, wow, that's imported and... Whew, that costs some money. And the colors, oh my, we don't even have those colors here. He's like, whoa, that's, 
They come in with their bags. And we're just observing. Just like, you know, you see, like, if, you, if you're if you ever at a VIP venue, you see, like, you know, like the, the, the Bentley pull up. You'll see, like, a $500,000 car, an $800,000 car, a $1.2 million car, and they pull up. And, like, whoa. Like, it's just like, oh, my goodness. And picture that. We're across the street with Jesus, and we're just observing the treasury of the temple. And people are giving their money. The rich guys come in. They got their garb. They got their their bags of money. And probably, you know, they had like, you know, a little uh, entourage. You know, they probably weren't even carrying money. It was the, 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 the servant was carrying the money. And then you see this poor widow. She doesn't have the garb. She doesn't have the garb. Maybe some patchwork and old patches. Maybe. But she's poor. She's a widow. And she joins in with the wealthy to give to the temple. No money bags. Not even the lowly quadrants. You know, what she gives, the value is lower than the lowly quadrants. It's in the form of two coins, two mites. And let's say, for example, we can hear it. We're across the street. But let's say, for example, we can hear it. Plink. Two mites. Plink, plink. We can hear it. I mean, if you, you know, I, I presently teach from America. And we have coins here. We have like, you know, half dollars. We got, you know, silver dollars. We have quarters. We have nickels. We have dimes. And my favorite, the penny. We have all these coins. But let's say, for, say, say for example, you take a quarter or a half dollar and you drop it. You can hear it and when it hits the ground or, you know, the tabletop or whatever, you know, the countertop. You can hear it. You drop a quarter, you can hear the heft of the coin. You take it, you open, you have it in your hands and, you, and, you, and you're, you know, between your fingers, you, you, you know, open your fingers, the coin falls and you can hear skadoosh. You can hear it. It's like a big sound. It's like, whoa, that's a quarter. You know, that, that was a coin, yes, but that wasn't, you know, a low value coin. That was a big coin. You know the sound of a quarter when it hits. Like, whoa, that was heavy. There was some some weight to that. But then you take a, a smaller valued coin. Take like a dime. Or my favorite, the penny. You're not hearing the skadoosh like you did with the quarter. No. You're just hearing the little plink. That's it. Plink. You know, okay, that was probably a dime, maybe a penny. Plink. You can hear it. And picture this, you and me, we're across the street, we're sitting with Jesus. And Jesus is observing, we're watching, wow, look at that guy with this, whoa, look at his robe. I've never seen a robe like that. Where are those colors? I've never seen colors like that. I, I've kind of seen like, you know, shades of it, you know, maybe it was, you know, it's like second hand or third hand, and, you know, and the guy's wearing it. It used to be a rich guy, but, you know, here it is like, you know, 20 years old and it's, you know, the colors faded. And so I might have seen something, but this is like brand new, like it was like fresh off the shelf and freshly imported from somewhere where they have those colors and those fabrics. Oh, my goodness. Look at look at the way the robe is just flowing. I've never seen a robe like that. And look at the entourage, There's like five guys with the guy. You got a rich guy and you got five, six, seven, eight guys with them. And look, they're all, they're all carrying big bags of money. And wow, they're just dropping it at the treasury. Oh my goodness. Wow, so much money. And then you have the poor woman. 
No bags of money. No bags of money. And there we are, we're sitting down. We're with Jesus. And we see, okay, you know, I've seen a lot of robes like that. You know, that's not, and, you know, I saw a lot of robes like that, you know, 10 years ago. But this robe, wow, you know, look, it's got holes, you know, it's dirty. It's got the, the, the patch jobs all over it. And you see her reach her hand. And you hear the plink. And then she takes her other hand. You know, another coin. Plink. Two mites. Not bags of money. And in verse 43. So he called his disciples to himself. And said to them. Assuredly I say to you. That this poor widow has put in more than all those who have given to the treasury. See, more than the money bags. More than what the wealthy gave. The woman has put in more. And carnally speaking... According to the flesh, this is impossible. Because look, we have, you know, multiple, 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 multiple bags of money and a lot of money. And, you know, this isn't like, you know, uh, copper. Multiple bags of money and it's like silver and gold and these are like, you know, high value. This isn't like the plink plink job. No, it, these are like the heavy skadoosh coins. And Jesus says, she has given more. And with human eye, this is impossible. You see, God's economy, it is not according to Adam. It is not according to flesh. It is not according to this world. And Jesus explains that assuredly I say to you, what Jesus says, across the street, they're observing. He calls his disciples to himself. He says, assuredly I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all those who have given to the treasury, for they all put in out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had her whole livelihood. You see, her whole livelihood. I cannot wait to meet her. I cannot wait to meet this beautiful, beautiful, beautiful woman. I cannot wait to meet her. It's a different way of thinking that we have different way of thinking, a different way of walking. Because carnally speaking, what? Two mites? It's impossible to be more than what these guys gave. It's impossible. Look, I saw the, 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 the colors, the robe. I've never seen a robe like that before. Look, what are those fabrics? Where are those fabrics from? I've never seen fabrics like that. I've never seen colors like that. I've never seen a design like that. I've never seen workmanship like those beautiful fabrics. I've never seen that before. And according to the flesh, 
according to the ways of Adam. Surely, surely the wealthy gave more, but according to the kingdom, according to God, according to His Son, His only begotten Son, according to Him, He says, Assuredly, I say to you, that she put in more. How is that possible? Because they gave out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty. Her whole livelihood, that's what she put in. You see? It's different. It's different. It's a manner that is holy. Why? Because it's of the Holy Spirit. And yes, shunned and rejected by the world ever since the beginning. You think Noah was, you know, widely accepted by the fallen world? No, he wasn't. Ridiculed, made fun of. Building a boat. Moses, or not Moses, Noah. You think, Noah, Noah, you're so stupid, you're so stupid. Why are you building this big boat? Why are you building this big boat, Noah? Look, the ocean, it's way over, number one, like, this is huge. You can build it here, you're not going to carry it anywhere. Number two, the ocean, it's way over there. You're so stupid, Noah. You're so dumb. You're so stupid. Think of what the world said of Noah. And then it started to rain. And then it started to rain. So beautiful, the ways of righteousness. And yes, rejected by the world. And even still today, you, walking with the Lord, holy unto the Lord, rejected and shunned by the world, and yet a sweet aroma unto the Lord. To the beautiful, beautiful people of the way, a remnant of these last days. God bless you. I love you.